as we consider your word again today. Father, we're so grateful for the fact that your Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to understand what is written and who applies it to our hearts and to our minds and enables us to better serve you. Father, you have not asked us to walk blindly, but to walk in the light that is given to us by the Word of God. And Father, as we have studied through Genesis over these past several years, we're so grateful for the truths that have come to us, for the enlightenment that you have granted through your Spirit. And now, Father, as we work in these next few Sundays in finishing the work, we trust you to guide us through those through those days, those weeks. And Father, I trust that you will bless each heart, each life in here this morning. I thank you for your hand upon Ollie and just pray that strength will continue to come and he'll be made completely well. And for others, Lord, who need your special touch today, we pray for that. And then throughout our Sunday school, Father, in so many different classes, we have people who have been a part of this class working and we trust that your hand will be upon them and that in every class we will see the hand of God ministering uh, to each heart in life. We thank you for your presence in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we'll finish Genesis chapter 49, but I'd like to read again uh, for continuity's sake because we're right at the very end of the blessing of Joseph and we're going to move on to Benjamin, but I'd like to finish up because there is a concept here that we just touched on that I'd like to just say a little bit more about. So if you will turn to verse 22 again, Genesis 49:22. Again, the blessing of uh, Jacob upon his favorite son, Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob... From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers." This morning I'd like to finish this prophecy by dealing with the last uh, couple of lines there in the passage. The may, may they, referring of course to the blessings that have surpassed that of the ancestors, may they be upon the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Now, we often use the word distinguished in, you know, rather innocuous ways. He's a distinguished-looking gentleman, you know, or, or something like that. But in, the, in here, in, the, in this particular passage, we're dealing with a very specific Hebrew word. And it, it means consecrated. It, it means devoted or separated unto God. The word is the term nazir, from which we get later on the term nazirite which should not be confused, by the way, with the word in the New Testament, Nazarene. Nazarene and Nazarite, according to many scholars, don't even come from the same root. Uh, they do not mean the same thing. In fact, Jesus talks about the contrast, you know. Oh, he came drinking no wine and 
talking about John the Baptist, but I came drinking wine, and in either case, you railed on us. And, and the contrast is there. Jesus was not a Nazarite in the sense of the Old Testament term here. A Nazarite was a separated one, someone who was set aside specifically for the service of God. And later on, and we read this passage, I think it was the last thing we did last week, we read that passage from Numbers chapter 6 where some of the details are given as to what a Nazarite was to do or more specifically what he or she was not to do. And it could be a male or a female, as was clear in that passage. And, and the primary things uh, were that uh, a, a Nazarite was not to touch anything having to do with the grape, not even the seed, the skin, or any part of it. Now, it wasn't because the, the grape was a, a, a forbidden fruit, because it was not. It was one of the clean fruits that was acceptable within the Hebrew society. But, but it seems to be symbolic of separating from the temptations of the world. It's, it's a symbolism here. And then they were also, a Nazarite was not to touch, any, not to touch a dead body. Again, indicating a separation from uncleanness. And, and then as a symbol, uh, as an outward symbol of the Nazarite vow and as a symbol of the strength of God, the hair was to be allowed to grow <laughs> uh, until it got to be as long as it uh, would grow during the time that the vow was taking place. And then the vow, when, when the vow ended, the hair would be cut off and it would be put on the sacrificial fire along with all the offerings that a Nazarite was supposed to make when he or she came to the end of his or her vows. And there were about four or five sacrifices that had to be made at that particular time. Now, the scripture seems to indicate that this was an opportunity for people who were not of the tribe of Levite, uh, of Levi, to, to be consecrated to God for whatever period they chose, or in some cases it was God's choice as to the length of time. But the, the tribe of Levi was set aside to be the priestly tribe amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 11 tribes were not committed to that task, and they weren't to be the ones to tear down and set up the tabernacle. They weren't the ones from whom the priests would be chosen, the descendants of Aaron. They weren't the ones who would uh, you know, move in groups according to the months of the year and, and carry out the duties of the tabernacle or later the temple. So there needed to be some way by which these people could express a special consecration on their part to God. And so God gave them the vow of the Nazarite. Now, one of the best known examples of a Nazarite in the Old Testament is Samson. He is not the only one but he is one of the better known ones. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to, to turn to Judges 13 and read about how that came into being. Judges 13, beginning at first, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. Verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are now, behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but now you shall conceive and give birth to a son. 
Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine nor strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now in the case of Samson, the choice was God's. God said, this man shall be a Nazarite. He shall be separated, consecrated unto me for his entire lifespan. Now, the Nazarite vow allowed, as we read in, in Numbers chapter 6, for an individual to choose himself or herself to become a Nazarite and to consecrate himself or herself unto God. But in the case of Samson and the case of Samuel, and of course in the case of John the Baptist, it was God's choice. God picked this person, and, and God picked the person to be a Nazarite before they were ever born. And of course, in the case of John the Baptist, the scripture tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was ever born. And the whole life was to be dedicated and committed unto the vow of the Nazarite. Now, Samson, of course, didn't live up to his Nazarite vow too well. He, of course, didn't personally make the vow. It was his made through by the angel of the Lord through his mother. But he knew what it was, and he kept the part of keeping his hair long, but he didn't live a very committed life to the, to the teachings of, of Scripture. And, of course, there was Scripture available in his day because Moses had already lived and the Pentateuch had already been written and uh, was available for knowledge, for teaching. In fact, it was commanded that it be taught, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. All of the sons of Jacob were, of course, to be committed to God in the sense that they would be the founding fathers of the Hebrew nation. But Jake, uh, Joseph was clearly the most wholly dedicated in his heart to God himself. He was separated unto God. He was committed by his own choice. And he was used of God more than any other to save Israel and to save Egypt even. Now as you study scripture, I think it becomes clear that in a spiritual sense, I'm speaking in a spiritual sense now, God has called all of us to be Nazarites. Not in the sense that we grow long hair, or we can't touch a dead body or one of those things, but in the sense that we are all separated unto God. We're told in Peter that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church, the church of the living God. We are to have a heart that is separated, that is consecrated to God as a Nazarite was separated or consecrated unto God in his or her heart. I'd, I'd like to read a couple of passages that I have listed on there, first from 2 Corinthians, that illustrates at least in part what this means. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a very familiar passage, 
But it helps us to understand at least in, in one area what it means to be consecrated and separated. And I, I think it's really important for us to understand that the teachings of Paul and the other writers in the New Testament, as inspired by the Spirit of God, were not intended for some kind of a spiritual elite. You know, only to be that what the apostles had to do and, and, and maybe a few other godly people like Stephen and the other deacons. But the layman can't really be expected to be held to this, and that's not true. The entire New Testament is intended for all of us. If we name the name of Christ, this is what God expects of us and what he will do for us. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have, unrighteous, have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has, an un, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul in another place says, when the statement is made, come out from among them, be separate, that kind of an idea, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to go live on a mountaintop in a monastery to separate ourselves from the world. Because Paul says, if that were to happen, we would have to just depart from the world. But the scripture means that in our hearts, we're separated. We don't think as the world thinks. We don't act as the world acts. We, we don't do the things the world does, which are, you know, examples of a profligate lifestyle. Because we have been changed, we have been separated unto God. And I think one of the tragedies of the church today is that so many of the things that are true of the world have permeated the church. And uh, the church in many ways isn't very different from the world. And it doesn't really stand out. You know, if the church isn't being persecuted for its faith, that's probably because the church isn't standing very strong on its faith. In James chapter 4, we have another passage that emphasizes what God intends. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Now, really, to me, that's, that, path, that, that line just leaps off the page to me. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? A lot of people read the Bible and it's like it's just, you know, it's a nice poetry. It's kind of a nice story or it's high-level thinking. Yeah. It's the very word of God that has a purpose. 
He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And let your laughter in effect your worldly pleasures be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom or literally repentance. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. It's really strong stuff. We had a couple in a class that I taught years ago who stopped coming because he said the teaching is too strident. Well, it's what God says, not what I say. You know, the, the, the Lord's words are strong. Um, God knows that uh, we have a very strong tendency to, to lean away from God in our own flesh. And so God comes on with the full truth. You know, one of the nice things about God is he doesn't pull his punches. He says, this is the way it is. This is the way. Walk ye in it. As some have tried to, you've, you've heard it many times, many have tried to change the Ten Commandments into the Ten Suggestions. And, and they approach the whole Bible that way, as if it's just kind of a suggested way of living. It's not a suggested way of living. Not for the believer, anyway. It's the way of living. Now, it's true. Some people interpret it in such a way they make life absolutely miserable, you know. But, but if you read the scripture and understand the intent behind it and the fact that it's God's spirit who enables us to do this, we can't do it in ourselves, you know. How do we draw near to God in our own strength? We can't. But in him we can draw near to God. And, and he draws near to us. And, and humble ourselves. How can we humble ourselves in the presence of God? Well, we can't unless he enables us to humble ourselves. But we've got to have the willingness, the desire, the desire should be there. I think if we don't have the desire, there's something really wrong deep inside. You know, we don't stop sinning in the sense that, you know, we will fail in this life. But the desire to do what's right is there. And, and we're smitten in our hearts when we do sin. If we're not, then, then that's where the real root of the problem is. And, and that's what needs, needs to be dealt with. Because we should all be Nazarites in our hearts separated, consecrated unto God. And, and not to try to think in the sense that, well, it's okay for the pastor to be that way, but I don't have to because I'm just a lay person. Well, you know, you look at the Bible and you have a hard time finding that distinction anywhere. You know, the Bible doesn't teach a pyramid of power. You know, this, this whole idea of a, of a hierarchy where you have a, a high muckamuck at the top and all these other ranking muckamucks, that's human. That, that's not in the Bible at all. In fact, Jesus teaches the opposite. You know, that we are to treat one another. We're to submit to one another. We're to wash one another's feet. Not to have somebody come up and kiss your foot. You know, uh, that's, that's not of God at all. But we need the Spirit of God to enable us to do those things. Well, let's go back to 49.27 and read that really, really short verse. Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. 
In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the spoil. <laughs> that kind of leaves you hanging, doesn't it? This was the youngest of his sons, the second son of his beloved Rachel, the one whom he named son of my right hand. But how is he portrayed? He's portrayed here as a ravenous wolf. Now, the genus Canis is found in association with human beings for a long time. One of the earliest animals known to be domesticated by the human race is the dog. And the dog was apparently primarily domesticated out of the family of the gray wolf. The gray wolf, the genus Canis lupus, was very, very widespread in antiquity. There is evidence that the, this particular genus was ubiquitous in Europe, in Asia, and in North America. And that, of course, its later reduction was largely the product of human activity. Now, we know that the wolf is a carnivore. and you've probably been reading about the fact that they're trying to reintroduce the wolf in various areas, and they're increasing the numbers so that we, we get back to a more natural situation uh, in the United States and Canada. The wolf's a carnivore and uh, you know they can be a hundred pounds or more uh, from what I understand. The gray wolf was known in ancient Palestine and according to some records they have even seen the gray wolf in 20th century Palestine. So when he says wolf he means wolf as you think of wolf. And this is the first use of the term in the Hebrew, but it's not the last. It's used 13 times altogether in the uh, Old Testament. Not in every case is it used, of course, to refer directly to the animal, but uh, to a name of a person in some instances. But Benjamin is likened to a wolf. A wolf, we're told, which tears away to gain possession. <laughs> You know, we've all, if, if we've never seen a wolf, we've certainly seen the pictures of a wolf in action. And, uh, of course, most of us have seen a dog, and, and some dogs don't seem to act a whole lot different from, from the wolf. In the morning he devours, in the evening he divides. What in the world can that mean? Well, it seems that the idea here is one of relentless pursuit of food, of sustenance. He's constantly going after it. It's like his whole life is bent on uh, seeking after sustenance. It's a strange prophecy when you think about it. Concerning this son, who because of his youth was always in the background. You really hear almost nothing of Benjamin other than the fact that he happened to be there. You know, it was in his bag that the golden cup of Joseph was placed. You know, and, and he's always kind of like the, the trailer here is the tail end, the youngest of the kids, and you don't really find anything in Genesis which tells us anything of the character of this young man prior to this particular prophecy. And so it seems strange to us. But obviously, Jacob knew something of this young man, and of course, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he was able to make this particular prophecy. It seems to contain two elements. A promise and a warning. The promise was that the tribe of Benjamin would be as strong as a wolf. 
the Benjamites would be successful in warfare and they would be frequently involved in it. If you don't believe it, just pick up the Bible and start with Judges and start reading through. And, and you'll find out uh, that many times the tribe of Benjamin was involved in warfare. And they were generally successful. The warning seems to be that they could become cruel and voracious as a wolf. Now, I want to look at some examples to illustrate these things. First of all, that they were successful in warfare. One particular passage came to mind in Judges chapter 3. Now again, let me just uh, say that the period of the Judges was the period of time in the history of Israel between the completion of the conquest and the anointing of the first king, Saul. That was a period of time that was somewhere between 400 and 200 years long. And the scholars quibble about it as to exactly how long the period was. But between 400 and 200 per years was the period of the, of the judges. And God raised up the judges who were charismatic individuals who were raised up to meet the need of the hour to lead Israel to repentance and to victory over the enemy. Here we have the story of the judge Ehud, beginning at verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. So, you know, about the size of a Roman sword, 18 inches long. Of course, there weren't any Romans yet, but about that size. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who carried the tribute. This is Ehud saying, all right, you guys can go now. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal, which indicates this tribute was being offered at, at Gilgal, which is in Israel, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. You know, hold it, hold it till I get everybody out of here. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone, in, the cool, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right th th thigh and thrust it into his belly. I'll, I'll go down to verse 23. Then Ehud went out to, into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the door of the roof chamber, doors of the roof chamber were locked. 
They said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. He said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Now, it's kind of a gross story in some aspects, but it shows that this, this mighty man of Benjamin was used of God as, as a, a valiant warrior to go and to slay the, the enemy king. Uh, because the Moabites had occupied the land. They'd occupied the city of the Palms, Jericho. And, and they had occupied all that plain down there. And so God allowed them to be driven out. And he, he gave Ehud the strength to do this. And then Israel, as they flocked down to the Jordan to cut off the retreat of the Moabites, who were retreating back to Moab as a result of the death of their king, and slew 10,000 of them there as they tried to cross the Jordan River. So we have an example of a, of a Benjamite who was, what we could say, a mighty man, a valiant man, who, who would go right into the very den of the enemy to slay the, the king. <laughs> That's, I mean, you know, it, it's something you read about in stories and, and they make movies about, you know, Indiana Jones or something, but you don't really think somebody's going to do something like that, you know. But, but he did. In 1 Chronicles, we won't turn to it, but in 1 Chronicles, we have these words, the, son of Ulam, the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers, 150 of them. All of these were the sons of Benjamin. And in 2 Chronicles, we read these words, Now Asa had an army of 300,000 of Judah and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them were valiant warriors. Valiant warriors. So Benjamin could be as a wolf, mighty, strong, powerful. But also Benjamin could be cruel and voracious as a wolf can be. And we see an example of that in, in really kind of a horrible story that's recorded for us in, in Judges 19 and 20. The background is, well, let's just say that an event transpired at Gibeah, which was a horrible thing. The, the men of Gibeah wanted this particular traveler to come out uh, so that they could uh, ravage him. Obviously, there was homosexuality uh, of flame there in the city of Gibeah. And instead, he sent out his concubine, and, and they, they basically killed her with, with abuse. And so he, remember, chopped her up in 12 pieces and sent one out to each of the tribes of Israel and says, this is what the people of Gibeah have done. And so we discover that Israel gathers together to do something about this. In the uh, 20th chapter of Judges, we have the story 
of the attempt to purge. Israel has gathered to purge sin out of their midst at Gibeah. Verse 12 of Judges chapter 20. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that's taken place among you? Now then, de deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Then the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword, who draw the sword. All of these were men of war. Now the sons of Israel arose went up to Bethel and inquired of the Lord and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against, the ben against Benjamin. And the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and felled to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they arrayed themselves the first day. And the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah, and the second day the second day, and fell to the ground again, 18,000 men of the sons of Israel, all these drew the sword. Now the story goes on, and eventually, of course, Benjamin is defeated. Eventually, Israel overwhelms Benjamin, and the entire uh, male portion of that uh, nation is nearly dry, uh, destroyed. You read, if you continue on, it's a long passage, that next 25,000 of the men of Benjamin will be killed, and then on another day, another 25,000 will be killed. All because they chose to defend the wicked men in their midst because they were simply of Benjamin. This is obviously a foolish thing that they did. And it's kind of an example of this cruel, voracious activity. Because as a result, we have read 40,000 men of Israel were killed directly. 50,000 of Benjamin will yet fall, and certainly others of Israel will fall in that process. So we could be looking at 100,000 men slain on the battlefield because Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers. They became a rapacious wolf in the midst of the tribe, of the tribes of Israel, and, and as a result, 100,000 men paid with their lives. For this activity. It's really sad. It's tragic. Benjamin will end up with only about 600 men left and, and most of the rest of the nation will be destroyed and they have to go around trying to find a wife someplace and uh, almost completely destroyed a tribe out of Israel ultimately. Civil war, uh, one of the greatest tragedies. And Did, did uh, Jacob foresee this? 
Well, I, I don't think Jacob foresaw all these details, but certainly Jacob, through God's inspiration, was speaking of this when he wrote this, this passage in, in Genesis, that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All right, let's read the last few verses of the 49th chapter. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their fathers, their fathers said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. After all these weeks studying Jacob, we almost feel like we lose a friend here. <laughs> in, in summarizing Jacob's prophecies, Moses makes the very first reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. You notice he says in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the first time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. Always before this, they were the sons of Jacob, or possibly the sons of Israel, but always the sons of Jacob. That's the reference to them. But of course, now Jacob will be gone. And, and when Moses is writing this, which is 400 years later, why, of course, Jacob has long been dead, and, and the, the uh, progenitors of each tribe have long been dead. And so to speak of the tribe of Israel was much more sensible than to refer to simply the son of Jacob. The word tribe comes from a Hebrew word that means rod, staff, or scepter. And it seems the connection here, in speaking of them, the twelve scepters of Israel, the, the connection is the symbolism of the rod and the staff as the emblem of authority. A scepter is a symbol of authority, and we've already talked about that when we dealt with the prophecy concerning Judah. God had authorized the division. I mean, it was God who gave Jacob 12 sons, and it was God who authorized the division and established the tribal government. And the tribal government in Israel was semi-autonomous. Each tribe had its tribal leadership. And the tribes were broken down into clans. And so you have the clan tribal situation. And the elders of the tribe were the leaders of the tribe. And they ran the government of the tribe. And we notice as we get into the period of judges, there was no national government. There was not a king. There was not a head of state. So you had 12 semi-autonomous tribes operating. And whenever there was a need for common defense, God would raise up a leader from one of the tribes who would become the judge, as, as it's called, and he would lead Israel into victory. And then when it was all over with, they would settle back down into their original state. They didn't have a standing army. They, they had no 
And can you imagine how the level of taxes? No government, you know, to have to uh, support. Uh, so the only, only taxation, of course, would have been for the support of the tabernacle. So God authorized this division. The, the 12 sons of Jacob had simply been brothers, half-brothers in some cases. But through the years, through the centuries actually, had come thousands and hundreds of thousands and ultimately two and a half million people who had descended from these original 12. And they were organized tribally after the name of the son of Jacob. So you have the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Joseph, and on down the line. Now in the 28th verse, uh, we read that Jacob blessed his sons according to the appropriate blessing for that son. And after reading those and studying those, we think, um, I'm not sure all of those were really blessings. It doesn't sound like it, at least, as what ultimately comes. But apparently, they could have been blessings if they had chosen, they and their descendants, to follow God. The blessings of God, and, and you know, I can't emphasize this enough because the scripture does. The blessings of God are conditional. They're conditional upon our obedience. We obey, God blesses. We disobey, God withholds his blessing. Especially the spiritual blessing, which of course is the most important one. And, and that's the way it was for these individuals. Had they walked faithfully before God, all of these prophecies would have been fulfilled in their, their, their most blessed sense. And, and, and Benjamin would have been a ravenous wolf only in the sense of being a terror to the enemies of Israel, but never to Israel itself as we saw the civil war which broke out. Jacob was very concerned that since he was dying in Egypt, he might end up being buried in Egypt. Now, to you and to me today, I, I don't know, I can't speak for any of you, but I know where I'm buried is immaterial to me. <laughs> you know, because when we're dead, we believe we go on into the presence of the Lord, as Paul teaches, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So what happens to the body is, is not really too consequential. But Jacob, knowing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the great fathers of this nation, he knew that for the sake of their tradition and looking back to their forefathers, that it would be best for them all to be buried in the promised land and not off in some foreign land where they'd always think, oh my goodness, our father Jacob was buried down there in Egypt, so Egypt must be important to us. Now, he wanted to be buried in the Holy Land. Now, of course, the idea the ancient Hebrews had concerning death was a little bit different from what we have. They didn't have the full revelation of God yet. They, they didn't know that absent from the body was instantly present with the Lord. You know, even David in, in some of the Psalms talks about being laid in the grave where you cannot praise God. So Jacob wanted to be buried in the land that had been promised to him. And he had extracted that promise from Joseph, and we've already read that, that Joseph would be sure that he was buried in Canaan. And now he's making it clear to all of the sons, I want you all to know, hold Jacob, uh, Joseph responsible, I want to be buried in the cave of Machpelah. I want to be laid beside Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah. Not here in 
Egypt. Now we will discover that he will be embalmed, which isn't necessarily bad. They'll put him through the process that they did in Egypt. And uh, so he will be preserved, which is a good thing because he's going to be in, in uh, Egypt for a little while before they get him back to, uh, to Canaan. To me, it's kind of interesting because I think I mentioned to this to you before, they have done a little secret probing down there in the cave of Machpelah. It's, it's sealed off. You can't just walk into it. You can walk into the, to the uh, mosque-like building on top, which actually was a, a building built originally by Herod the Great, the one that's standing there now. And you can walk through that building, but you can't go into the cave underneath. Be interesting to know if, uh, if Jacob's still there. He'd be the most likely one to still be there because he was embalmed in the full Egyptian method. He was made into a mummy, if you will, whereas none of the others were. So there's always a possibility he might still be there. You know, that would be, wouldn't that be something? Well, after he has presented his will and testament, the patriarch Jacob dies. 147 years of life now come to an end. And the thing that struck me about this the most was his boys are now on their own. <laughs> the 12 boys are now on their own. They got to handle it themselves. They ought to be able to by now, you know. The youngest of them is probably 40 or 50 years old, you know, and, and some of them are probably a well, they're 80 or so. Good night. It's about time they could handle it on their own, you know. But it, it is interesting because it's sort of like the, the curtain drops. Clunk. As, as soon as we finish this 50th chapter and they get, they get Jacob buried down there, it seems, the curtain just drops. End of Act 1. <laughs> Act 2 starts two, 400 years later. Whoa. Big gap there between the death of Jacob and the birth of Moses. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing. We can speculate a lot about it, but that doesn't help a whole lot. 